The majority of people who say they're on a ketogenic diet probably would not be, most mostly not be. So a ketogenic diet is very, it's not high protein, that's very high fat. So a, a clinical ketogenic diet as it's accepted as a standard of care, like this type of medical diet is pretty low in protein. The keto diet defined by the general population is kind of like under 50 grams of carbs per day. But a lot of people just get carbs in throughout the day and don't realize how much they're getting from nuts or even avocados or fruit or things like that. Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, redshirt dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. Dr. D'Agostino is a tenured associate professor at the University of South Florida Morazani College of Medicine in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology. He teaches medical neuroscience, medical physiology, nutrition, and neuropharmacology. He is also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition to assist with their efforts towards optimizing the safety, health, and resilience of the warfighter and astronaut. His primary research focuses on developing and testing nutritional and metabolic-based therapies for a variety of disease states and advancing the use of metabolic-based therapies into human clinical applications. In this episode, Dr. D'Agostino explains the difference between a true medical keto diet versus a low-carb diet and the benefits of each and whom they can benefit and why. This episode is all about improving your metabolic health and feeling good on a day-to-day basis. Dr. D'Agostino is so knowledgeable in various nutritional and metabolic therapies while testing many of them on himself. If you want to learn how to improve your metabolic health, which we all really should, This is knowledge you're going to want to keep in your back pocket. Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on and pick your brain. I mean, we kind of were just like, all right, we need to start, stop talking and hit the record button. Um, But so many parallels and just thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it and look forward to, yeah, talking with you. Well, I'd love for you to just start off by telling, you know, myself and our listeners a little bit more about your journey um, to becoming, you know, not only a neuroscientist, but how your passion grew around nutrition and, you know, also sharing so much information about the keto diet and metabolic health. Yeah, I think I, uh, I never thought my interest in nutrition would go in the direction of the ketogenic diet because when I had an interest in high school and nutrition, uh, but mostly farming and environmental uh, science and things like that, but also fitness and nutrition. So I was kind of torn in what to major in and uh, in college, but I did major in nutrition also majored in biology. And uh, I was in a reg- like an RD, it's called nutrition science, but you could go you took classes with the registered dietitians, but to be a dietitian is a lot of work. Oh, <laughs> so, and I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you know that, right? And yeah. uh, it was, maybe I didn't know that going into it, but I didn't realize it's like all the, the clinical hours and uh, I love the coursework. Yeah. And I actually went on and took like two or three advanced nutrition courses, uh, like PhD level. I got like as like a non-matriculated student. And I really liked the, the advanced nutrition courses. Uh, 
but I didn't want to put all the time and effort to be like an RD. It just, uh, it was a lot of work. And I, I know I wanted to go to grad school uh, or, or med school. So I was like taking the MCATs, taking the GREs and things like that. And I worked in a lab, a physiology lab, and I got steered into doing a PhD. Uh, and the program was physiology and neuroscience. So it was really studying the neural control of autonomic regulation or respiratory neurobiology. So the brainstem mechanisms that control our breathing and why we don't have to think about breathing and the specific neurons in the brain that sense the levels of like hydrogen ions and oxygen on to do a postdoc in uh, respiratory control in the context of extreme environments, which would be like an environment... Uh, uh, hyperbaric environment, like a Navy SEAL breathing, a, you know, using a high, uh, high oxygen rebreather or a space environment or like a submarine environment where the CO2 level is high. Kind of studying these things, I ended up doing a postdoctoral fellowship uh, uh, funded by the Navy. And it led me down the direction of going back to nutrition because the ketogenic diet could prevent and be neuroprotective against oxygen toxicity, which was the major source of funding, to develop mitigation strategies to predict and prevent what's called central nervous system oxygen toxicity, which manifests in seizures. And I was mostly interested in like antioxidants and, and they, they tend to work in like in vitro preparations and maybe in animals sometimes, but, uh, there was studies that the military did showing that if you fasted animals and then subjected them to high levels of oxygen, that it could prevent seizures. And they were just like, it gave them like superhuman power. So I, I became very interested in like uh, 2007 or eight in this idea of fasting, how it changes our metabolic physiology and how that changes brain neuropharmacology and also the fuel systems that the brain uses. So that was... Sorry, that was a bit long-winded, but that was like the springboard for me going and studying the ketogenic diet. No, that's such that, a great story. And I'm curious, Dom, was that, did, did they have to be on a true keto diet in order, like with the research with that, or was there flexibility? Because that's actually something I want to talk about today, which I'm sure you've seen so much, like when people are on the keto diet, right? Like there's so many variations and most people aren't yeah. doing like a true keto protocol. But did you find for, yeah. in order for like the seals to prevent those, it, they had to be on like a true keto diet? Uh, good question. Like 80% of people that say they're on a ketogenic diet are not. A ketogenic not. diet is, <laughs> yeah, it's it's defined by definition. It's like an elevation of ketones and that could be measured in the blood, in the urine or in the breath, actually. Uh, so there are different commercially available technologies that can measure, you know, uh, urine, uh, blood and breath. So the majority of people who say they're on a ketogenic diet probably would not be most, mostly not be. So a clinical ketogenic diet, which is a hundred and two years old now, <laughs> developed at Mayo Clinic and used, uh, kind of popularized by, uh, Johns Hopkins and then later, uh, Jim Abrams of the Charlie Foundation was on Dateline NBC and brought a lot of exposure in 1994 while I was in a nutrition program and didn't really pay attention to it. I remember seeing it on TV, but he had Meryl Streep, uh, Meryl Streep do, do a movie about the ketogenic diet. So it was called First Do No Harm. And it was about his son, Charlie. And then that brought a lot of attention to the ketogenic diet. 
So a ketogenic diet is very, it's not high protein, like the original ketogenic diet, it's very high fat. And it, it becomes pretty confusing because the ratios clinically that I use are four to one, three to one, two to one, or modified Atkins, which is 1.5 to one. So the first number, for example, four to one is four parts fat to one part, uh, you know, protein and carbohydrates. But since carbohydrates are like negligible, I mean, so that one part, it would be, you know, like 200 grams of fat <laughs> and like, you know, 40 grams or uh, 50 grams of protein, right? So that would be kind of like what I would, what I would consume. And that's pretty low in protein, actually. So a, a clinical ketogenic diet, as it's accepted as a standard of care, like this type of medical diet is pretty low in protein. And that became problematic uh, in the pediatric world because it was some stunting of growth. So now we know that we can be a little bit more liberal with the protein, like a 3.1, uh, 3 to 1 or 2.5 to 1. So, which is a little bit more liberal in protein. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, the keto diet defined by the general population is kind of like under 50 grams of carbs per day. That would also be like a low carb diet that will put a lot of people, especially physically fit people or active people in a state of ketosis. And that's a low carb diet. And then a very low carb diet is defined by under like 25 grams per day. And that will usually almost always put someone in a state of ketosis, mild ketosis, even like if the fat is not super high. So, but a lot of people just get carbs in throughout the day and don't realize how much they're getting from nuts or even avocados or fruit or things like that. And so uh, it's really hard to do that. And you have to, to be on a ketogenic diet, you have to count your macros and really calculate things like the parents that manage these kids, you know, it's, it's a lot of work to do it. Clinically. Oh, it's a full-time, uh, it's a full-time job. Yeah. You, you know, there's adults that do it and they do more of the modified Atkins and then it becomes routine yeah. and make all your food. Uh, but, but I think it's really important for people to understand that this is a medical diet. It involves, you know, working with a registered dietitian, a registered dietitian who's knowledgeable about ketogenic mm -hmm. diets and how to, Beth Zupakenia works for the Charlie Foundation. And there's about a dozen or so registered dietitians that have been doing this for decades that I usually refer people to. Um, but what we have been at the, like, the center of is actually expanding the use of the ketogenic diet for other applications. And then, uh, you know, seeing if it has real world applications for, you know, performance and, and for, uh, you know, type two diabetes management or glycemic control and things like that. So, which it does, but it, it's, it's a quite a restrictive diet, uh, a clinical ketogenic diet, whereas low carb is really not low carb. You don't have to count macros usually, um, you know, so there, there's pros and cons to it and there's side effects too. Most people who say they're on a keto diet aren't on like a clinical keto diet or they're really just doing mm -hmm. more of like that low carb, like a low carb variation yeah. diet. Or do you see big, like what are the biggest differences you're seeing if someone's on, in terms of like metabolic health and metabolic markers, which like we can go through too if anyone listening is like, well, what does that even mean? Um between just doing a low carb diet versus doing 
a ketogenic diet? Yeah, I think it depends if if someone wants to use a ketogenic diet for the medical management of a seizure disorder, mm-hmm. a neurometabolic disorder. Uh, the next conference I'm going to is an LSD conference, lysosomal storage disease. So, uh, but, and you know, there's like, it's called pomp disease and McArdle's. So there's a lot of these rare diseases. We study glucose transporter type one deficiency syndrome disease or glut one. So in these cases, the ketogenic diet needs to be very calculated. And ideally you want ketone levels up into that, like one to uh, definitely above one, but into that, like even three to four range for these neurometabolic disorders because the brain is lacking energy uh, in many of these. And then, you know, for GLUT1D, for example, I've seen kids like literally wake up because they have, they have hypoglycemia in this uh, cerebrospinal fluid, which means that, you know, without the GLUT1 transporter, they're not getting glucose across uh, the blood-brain barrier. So their blood glucose is normal, but the cerebrospinal fluid blood glucose is under two millimolar which produces severe hypoglycemia. So the ketones then become the alternative source of energy and the primary source of energy for the brain. So if their ketones are not elevated, then they're, they're just like zombies. Uh, and, and then there's a ver- wide variety of uh, metabolic, you know, inborn errors of metabolism and neurometabolic disorders that are highly responsive to the ketogenic diet. And they're rare, but I'm discussing them because in the general population, as we age, the brain's ability to use glucose as an energy source decreases over time. And that's due to a wide variety of reasons and uh, in the context of things like Alzheimer's disease or traumatic brain injury, uh, many neurodegenerative diseases are pathophysiologically linked to impaired glucose metabolism. For like Alzheimer's disease, for example, you could do an FTG PET scan and the intensity of the glucose, the radio label glucose is very dim on that PET scan. So the, the uh, FTG PET is used to diagnose uh, uh, cancer, actually gives you a lot of information on the location of cancer and the aggressiveness. It's like the gold standard. So cancer uses a lot of glucose. That, that's another conversation that we could have. But as we age, our brain has an impaired ability to use glucose as an energy source. And that, that is due to a number of different reasons. It could be vasculature. You know, the, there could, you know, the blood vessels could be Lacking just brain blood flow. Um, there's a decrease in the enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, where we don't actually produce a lot of as much PDH. And that's like the, that's like the governor or rate limiting enzyme for glucose oxidation in the brain to make energy. And, uh, and also there's a transporter in the brain called the, the glut three transporter. And that there's less protein. If you like look at the protein levels, it's less, but also that the GLUT3 gets internalized inside the cell. So the glucose can't get across the, the membrane. So all these things have been, you know, identified as, as reasons. And I think maybe that's not as important as the idea of what is important is that as we age, the brain's ability to use ketones as an energy source does not decrease. Whereas as we age, the brain's ability to use glucose decreases. So this is work by Stephen Cunane. He's done like a dual ketone and PET and uh, glucose PET scan to show this. And that has major implications for, you know, Alzheimer's disease is broken up into like 
uh, preclinical where there's like, you know, you're kind of asymptomatic or just like, and then you have mild cognitive impairment and then Alzheimer's dementia, which would be like stage three, right? So uh, I do think it's really important to nail down and optimize metabolic health. And we could talk about, you know, there's a half dozen different metabolic biomarkers that I think could define that. You know, and sometimes we forget about things like blood pressure, right? If your blood pressure is high, you're likely damaging the vasculature and that vascular damage could actually lead to impaired brain blood flow. So these things are really important to nail down like in our 20s and 30s and 40s because the things... The lifestyle factors, it, you know, our lifestyle in our 20s, 30s, and 40s hits us. <laughs> the side effects of that or the, or the consequences of a poor lifestyle really hit us in our 50s. Like, well, in our 40s, really. I mean, I'm feeling some things now, <laughs> you know, in, uh, in pushing 50. So um, they creep up on us. And then in our 60s, they really hit, you know, especially yeah. muscle mass, too which is oh, yeah. a topic that we can get into with a ketogenic diet, uh, low levels of protein, you know, actually protein requirements probably increase as we age. Mm -hmm. And you need to couple that with some kind of resistance training because, and as we age and after the age of 30, 30 to 35, we leave, lose like 5% of our lean body mass. Per, and like, and um, we, don't ab we don't absorb protein as well. So that's like yeah. a whole nother... Very good point. Um, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if you've connected with um, Gabrielle Lyon, Dr. Gabrielle Oh, Lyon, I know. She's a good like, friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. And she, I mean, just you have a conversation with her and we had her on the show and it's like just learning about like the changes of, yeah, I mean, so much happens as we age, but yeah, just the like the amounts of less protein we absorb, the right, then we also have muscle mass decrease and sarcopenia on top of it. And it's like, yeah. That's and I'm glad you brought that up because that was kind of like one of my questions is I, I'm with you on like if we can set ourselves up well in our 20s, 30s and yeah, even 40s to help combat some of these right like downsides of aging and get our bodies in a good place. Where does like for someone who's really looking for, let's say, like overall health and overall metabolic health. Do you find a low carb diet can do a lot of similar thing or like a lot of some have a lot of similar outcomes to the ketogenic diet? But would you recommend that someone increase their protein based on what we just talked about with um, our muscle mass decrease and, you know, lower protein absorption? And maybe if they are doing a lot of strength training, like what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I uh, this is a little tricky question because people, I do not advocate people actually do a ketogenic diet, but I do it. So people are, well, 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 why do you do it? And I research it. So I'm actually always changing the type of ketogenic diet I'm doing. I went from four to one to modified Atkins to, uh, and then I'll do low carb for some days, but, and then I test ketogenic products, you know, and on the levels of ketones and things like that. Like most store-bought products are not keto, although they're widely advertised as that. Uh, so yeah, I do think the 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 low carb diet that people should be following um, would be it's like high protein, moderate fat. So just think of protein as your central macronutrient, um, and then healthy fats. And we can talk about what that would be. And then uh, carbohydrates in the form 
of, uh, you know, no acellular carbohydrates. So, uh, uh, vegetables and, and, uh, small amount of fruits, uh, are fine. One or two pieces of fruit per day. I think it's definitely fine. Uh, if one adheres to a low carb diet and that can have independent of having to count macros, which is I'm very networked with the community that does that with macronutrient trackers and, uh, the importance of that. And, but I, I find that, um, it's a bit macro counting is, is really applies to people following a high carb diet, maybe, uh, people that are athletes, but it makes people a little bit over, overly, uh, kind of neurotic about their food and just, uh, it, it, it tends to be something that takes up a lot of time and you don't have to do that. If you really want body composition changes, doing a low carb diet, you generally will because low carb diets are not because they're hyper satiating and probably not, uh, mildly hypo palatable. <laughs> so they're not hyper palatable. So, uh, by, by eliminating foods that are high sugar and high fat and processed foods, uh, these foods are hyper palatable and you're eliminating them and you're le- much, much less likely to indulge and overconsume, you know, protein and veggies. It just doesn't happen. So it is a type of elimination diet, but I think, um, and a ketogenic diet most certainly is. And I think that should be really reserved for, uh, medical, uh, disorders that are defined by science and clinical trials to respond to a ketogenic diet. So. And that, that, yeah. that is something that should be managed. Whereas a low carb diet, I think could apply to many different people. And I think we could even define that as under a hundred grams of carbs per day and would be, I mean, we just did a study just came out this morning, actually, uh, on low carb competitive elite, elite athletes that were under 50 grams of carbs a day and then high carb elite competitive athletes that were consuming over 350 grams of carbs a day. And it was a crossover trial with a two-week washout period. And the thing that, you know, and both groups perform similar uh, as far as like, you know, the metrics for, you know, uh, output and power and things like that and just their overall performance. But what was really um, uh, insightful is that the high-carb elite athletes, 30% of them were uh, their interstitial glucose was above, fasting glucose was above 100 milligrams per deciliter, which put them, even though they would be, you know, looking at them, they were athletes, they were high performers, uh, they were walking around in a pre-diabetic state and their glycemic, you know, their glucose levels throughout the day were also elevated. So if you know the story of like Tim Noakes, it kind of follows along, you know, that path too, and that creeps up to you over time. And they were not consuming uh, an amount of carbohydrates. They're not trying to like above and beyond what they would normally do, but they did not know wearing a continuous glucose monitor, which I have one on the back of my arm here. (laughs) Uh, And I use a Levels Health app that gives you insights into that. Um, But this is pretty, I mean, it just hit now and it's going to cause stir kind of in the community. Uh, Dr. Andrew Kutnick, my former PhD student, was the senior author on that. He may be a, a good person to have on. Uh, so I don't want to talk too much about it, but it's kind of making its rounds. It will today, like on social media, and it's kind of changing some opinions about how the ideal way to fuel an athlete. And it may not be, it likely is not 
super low carb and super high carb. It's somewhere in the middle to sort of augment and enhance metabolic flexibility to use all macronutrients. Yeah. And I think a big thing with that too is no athlete is an athlete forever, right? And so it's like you also, you get accustomed to eating a certain way and it's eating really that good. high of hey, carbs. Yeah. Uh-huh. And because unfortunately, like you do see, you know, some yeah. past athletes are still in great shape and, but it can be hard for someone they're so used to, they're just accustomed to eating that many carbohydrates and they're used to it. And even, I mean, you know, it's, not, it's like, even if they were to cut like 25% of that, that's still way over what they should probably be having if they're not still practicing every day. And like, it's, yeah. it's hard. And then it does. It's like, you know, you've been an athlete your whole life. And then unfortunately, if you're kind of in that pre-diabetic phase, even while you're an athlete, it can put you pretty quickly into, you know, poor metabolic health um, or worse metabolic health, I should say. But um I'm glad you brought up too about with the low carb diet, like you're not going to eat as much too usually because it's not like those highly palatable foods, but it's a very satiating way of eating because you're eating higher protein. You're eating, you should be eating a good amount of fats and we will talk about healthy fats. Um, But that protein and fats is going to be what really keeps you satiated and satisfied, which in the end is what we want. Like even when we're eating a highly palatable food, what what do we actually want from it? Like, yes, you may feel good in that moment when you're eating it, but it doesn't like leave you that satisfied lingering for a couple hours like a protein can do. Um, in terms of fats, both for someone who's on maybe that lower carb diet and for people who are on like a clinical keto diet, let's talk about the types of fats people should be eating because that's something too. It's like you see when some people are right, like doing a keto diet, which if they're even, you know, doing a clinical one or a variation, they may not be choosing the best fats. What kinds of fats should we be choosing? Yeah. So this is a topic <laughs> that uh, the the area of saturated fat as, you know, being demonized, uh, that, that science has been debated for a while. Um, and you know, I think the guidelines are something like less than 10%. And, but I I think that it should be limited in some capacity. I think 20% is probably pretty safe. Uh, but I, I, I feel that monounsaturated fats are pretty neutral in regards and polyunsaturated fats. And I hate to say it, even maybe some omega six fats are, can be, can helpful. Uh, and you know, if they're, if they're taken from whole, whole food sources, you know, not processed sources. Uh, I tried to create like a whole research program on uh, omega-6 fats or polyunsaturated fats as being uh, oxidized and disrupting membrane, uh, neuronal membrane, lipid fluidity. And, uh, and I started going down that track, but it was hard for me. I believed it personally, but the science wasn't there. And I kind of stopped in that area of research where if you add polyunsaturated fatty acids to like a lipid membrane and you expose it to a lot of oxygen, you see uh, membrane damage that you otherwise would not see. Uh, and if you replace it, you know, if you replace saturated fats with more polyunsaturated fats, which will take up and be part a big part of the membrane and our lab 
is the hyperbaric biomedical research lab. So we do a lot of work on hyperbaric oxygen and extreme environments and, uh, and then testing different antioxidants to pre prevent that. But the science really does not support the idea of like PUFAs being dangerous. I know there's a lot of voices out there that are kind of demonizing seed oils and things like that. And I don't, I think these things are probably not good to have in the diet, especially, but, but most important is the delivery method in which we are getting them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. just adding these oils to existing foods or the processed foods that they come in and, and many times, and also overheating oils, you could take, um, you know, these polyunsaturated fatty acids, and if they're not oxidized, uh, they're not dangerous. But once we heat them, and then, for example, like fast food restaurants that have a whole vat of this, and they're cooking french fries or fried chicken or whatever, and they're using that oil over and over, and it's oxidized. What, if you do this area of research, you're, you're able to smell like certain lipid peroxides and acrolein that you, because you work with it. So you can walk by restaurants and you can smell these oxidized lipids just by my sense of smell is, is very high for sensing these things just after working with them. And, you know, um, so I, I'm a big fan of monounsaturated fats being sort of the cornerstone of the fat in a ketogenic diet. And that could come from, uh, you know, I eat a ton of eggs. So, uh, you know, eggs are mostly actually monounsaturated fats. So oleic acid and olive oil and we do have we have tons of avocado trees on our farm our property um well and that's one thing dom i want to yeah. say too like you have your farming property to it's like even when we're saying eggs like are you still a big proponent like i always like to make the distinction of like trying to have pasture-raised eggs versus like a conventional egg or like a grass-fed meat versus regular like where do you fall with that stuff in terms of how the fat content could change in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you could buy uh, pasture eggs or just buy locally, I mean, I'm all yeah. for that. We had chickens. It didn't end well because we have coyotes and other uh, things on our property. But my neighbor has kind of won the war. I um, mean, it's kind of the <laughs> war of attrition. So, you know, we'll find dead chicken carcasses from hawks and stuff in our yard. But uh, he leaves me boxes of, you know, pasture-raised chicken eggs by the fence. And he'll like say, Amazing. hey, Gideon. So I, I have a good supply of that. We also we also buy eggs, you know, at the store too. Yeah. And when I can, when they're on sale, you know, I buy the pasture-raised. But we also give eggs to our dogs. And that becomes, the, it'll add up. Especially now with eggs used to be like a dollar a dozen when I was oh, growing it's up. It's honestly, Tom, uh, the only reason we joined Costco this year was because they have pasture-raised eggs. At a twenty-four mm -hmm. count for eight ninety-nine, I was like, "Yep, it'll save wow, it." Yeah, you just really go good. through it. You can go through it so quick. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. When I lived in Ohio, doing you're not going to believe. It. When I lived in Ohio doing my postdoc, there was a store by me that would have eggs three dozen for ninety-nine cents, <laughs> and it was like every couple weeks. And I would fill my whole shopping cart, and I would get this huge thing. And I would just basically, I would freeze the eggs. So I learned that you can freeze them. So I had a whole freezer full of, I was all about saving money and just eating tons of eggs. But anyway, just talking about fats, like, yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, I wouldn't go out of your way, especially if you're on a budget and have family. Eggs are just an amazing source of nutrition. Yep. Uh, the fatty acid ratio and content does differ, uh, you know, about 20, 30%, you know, if they're fed, but a lot of, you know, I, I think the fatty acid concentration of uh, commercial egg is still 
fantastic. Better you know, than I, I, be better than uh, not yeah, eating the egg. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, and then there's a debate about like chickens having omega sixes and things like that. But I don't. I eat a ton of chicken. I did the omega quant test, and I'm, I was ten point six, and omega six to omega three ratio of uh, three to one. And we eat a lot of chicken. I'll say that we eat do eat a lot of turkey, though, relative to chicken. And maybe turkeys eat something a little different. Turkey. I mean, people argue. Well, people haven't eaten chicken in you know the last like. Uh, 80 to 100 years. It's like a new food for humans to be eating these chickens. Whereas, you know, turkeys and wild game have been eaten for millennia. And maybe that's, I mean, that's not why I eat more turkey. I just yeah. probably eat probably more turkey than I do do chicken. But I do eat a lot of chicken and my omega-6 is like super low relative to omega-3. But I do eat a lot of fish and canned fish yeah. and uh, probably more so than fresh. But we have fresh too, at least once a week. Yeah. And that's the thing too. It's like, I mean, I'm so glad we're having the omega-6 discussion too, because their omega-6s come from so many healthy foods. Like you just said, chicken, it comes from avocados have omega-6s in them. Yeah. Um, when you make your hummus, like your hummus snacks has omega-6 fats, like not, you know, just from the, the chickpeas along with the oils you're using in it's again, it's not to demonize it. It's really more so we just have a lack of omega threes in our diet mm-hmm. as well. Like it's the combination. And like you said, also yeah. heating the oils. And that's kind of goes with like the same on the same lines. We were actually just I was just talking about this with another guest I was was recording with yesterday about saturated fats, how really where saturated fats in the past and in studies have you know can Right, like negatively affect your health and also kind of, I want to also say like where maybe the news has taken it a bit further than it needs to is when it's paired with a carbohydrate and an oil that's been heated or right, like it's not usually just that saturated fat on its own. Um, And a lot of it does go back to like the heating of oils and things like that. But omega-6s are really important for us. And there's even... um, I don't know, Dom, how much or how familiar you are with um, gamma linoleic acid, GLA. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. like, so uh, that's like the, just as we beneficial say, as omega-3s. Yeah, like, well, that's really, what we right? say. Yeah. It's the, yeah. We say it's the omega-6 that acts like an omega-3. Um, yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's another like great, you know, supportive omega-6 fat. But I think like, you know, I'm always just trying to educate people on like, rather than which I also just hate like taking things out of people's diet all the time. Like, yes, if you're, you know, eating, if you're mainly your omega-6s are coming from fried foods or things like that, yes, we're going to have that discussion. But I'd rather add things to your diet and to kind of help with that ratio and that balance of omega-6 to omega-3. Why don't we just add more omega-3s? And I know we had the discussion of like, most people aren't eating an enough fish to bring up their omega-3 levels or depending yeah. on what type of fish they're eating like anchovies and sardines are super high in omega-3s sure. but not too many people i mean some people love them and will eat them out of the can and um i also like mm-hmm. suggest to people like try them as well like if you haven't in a while like you may find yourself a little bit surprised yeah. um that you enjoy them but uh, most people, like if they're eating salmon or things like that, they're having it two to three times a week, which it's so important. We were just talking about testing, like to get tested and see because someone could be eating, you know, 
fish three times a week and their omega-3 levels are fine. And then, you know, the person next to them could be doing the same thing. And whether they're just not absorbing the fat as well or their omega-6 content's higher, um, it's just really important to get tested. And I know you, we were talking about, Don, that you did that. You were able to get tested and you saw that your levels were good. Um, But I know you said your wife had some improvements. So now you guys are like, all right, what can we do? Well, well, yeah. I mean, she eats fish maybe once or twice a week, but it'll be like a huge salmon filet, something yeah. like that. And maybe she'll grab like a can of sardines too. But maybe like, I mean, I eat, I eat like a, almost what I thought, what many people would say is a toxic level of fish. So it actually made me, I did like the hair heavy metals. Oh, like I did the, the mercury, Quest Labs yeah. heavy metals and stuff like that. And I was on the low end of the spectrum of what's normal. And this was coming back from the Dominican Republic where I was eating like larger predatory fish. And I was like, you know what? This is a great time to do a heavy metal test. So I let a couple of days go by. And uh, I mean, I was eating about three pounds of fish per day. It was something crazy. And in addition to that, I eat, it, I eat fish every day through, I eat mackerel. I kind of switched to mackerel and sardines. And then we, we'll have salmon once or twice Which during the week. Which is another great omega-3 source in the mackerel. Yeah, which a lot yeah, of people have, don't eat. A lot of people don't eat mackerel, but um, that's a great omega three source. Yeah, I buy cans for my dog. Like I think they're one pound, and they're something like like a dollar or two dollars and twenty five cents for a whole pound of of. And there's like three fish in each can with the bones and the and the skin. And a lot of people don't like that, but we give them to our dogs, and we're fostering you know puppies right now, and they're kind of growing on that. I give them mackerel and egg yolks and liver. So Gosh, uh, I want to be I want to be an animal. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to <laughs> adopt, you know, we're trying to yeah. find homes for these dogs that we've trained and like already potty trained and like my, you know, they're super healthy and everything. But uh, but I think it's really good to I mean, when it comes to but I, getting back to my wife, yeah, we eat kind of the same diet. She eats more carbohydrates for sure, a lot more carbs than I do, uh, and generally has carbs for breakfast and everything. But uh, the only way that her omega uh, quant percentages or omega, uh, what's it called? The omega quant percentages or yeah, like omega quant has a omega three index. Yeah, yes, her omega three index. Like, uh, just under five, where mine was over 10. So I was double hers and just by eating fish. So she is someone who is definitely not going to eat the amount of fish required to put it in the optimal range. And I would say. And um, she's probably people, more, she's probably like more, pe- like more people than not, you know? Like I feel like you're the outlier yeah, that's eating that much fish, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think the only reason I have omega 3 supplements at home, but I don't use them because I eat so much uh, and purposely didn't do that like a month before the test just to see, hey, what's my fish intake? So the majority of people really should be supplementing with omega-3s because the benefits are like, it's one of the most, you know, well-researched supplement to be using. Just make sure we get a great source of it. And uh, and omega-6, I don't think you need to be People do not need to fear monger uh, no. omega six seed oils unless they are consumed in abundant amounts in uh, processed food or you know just get your omega six from Whole Foods like you said and you'd be fine. Yeah, we talk about omega threes on our show, but we really probably don't talk about them as much as we 
as we should. But in terms of the quality, like for anyone listening, it's like, I don't know how many times you can say it, but like, if you get a fishy burp, a fishy smell, fishy taste from your omega-3 supplements, just like how if we picked up a piece of fish at the store and it smelled fishy, you're advised not to eat it. The same thing with supplements too, because what that generally means is that that oil, which we were talking about, like whenever oil is exposed to oxygen, it can go rancid pretty quickly, depending on the oil, right? Like there's, you know, some are more susceptible to oxygen than others. But for omega-3 fats, yes, like you expose it to oxygen, it can go rancid very quick. The unfortunate part that research has shown is rancid oils, including rancid omega-3 oils, can have a negative effect on your heart health in, t- in terms of your cholesterol levels. So you don't want to be, you know, one, like who wants to pay money for a supplement that actually could be hurting you? <laughs> um, and two, like yeah. nobody wants a fishy burp. Nobody wants to smell like right now while I'm taking my fish oil pregnant. If it even smelled fishy, oh, there is no chance it would be going in my body. Like it just, just be cautious about it. Obviously, like, you know, go with a trusted brand, but also those are things that you can always tell. And sometimes, who knows, if it's a trusted brand and it's still, you find that it smells fishy, still, like, don't take it. Reach out to them and let them know because, like we said, like, things can happen, too, and oxygen can. It's just so easy for them to be oxidized. Um, But I always want to let people know that because I would hate for anyone to be putting, you know, their financials into their health and trying to better their health when they really could be hurting their health in some yep. way. Yeah, um, especially if you're pregnant and, you yeah, know, especially. or or you're giving them to your kids and because that, that critical window of development, I think is super important. I mean, I think there's really good data on omega-3s and, de- and the developing brain. Um, you know, I had a, a long conversation with Tommy Wood and that's his wheelhouse, uh, you know, yeah. DHA and EPA, he'd be a great person to have on the podcast uh, in regards to the development, you know, of the brain. And yeah, no, a hundred synaptic connections. Yep. Um, oh, I know. I feel like that time just like flies by. And I know we have to wrap up, but I'm really, I'm curious if you have any other of your own personal health and wellness non-negotiables that you do most days or each day that just make you feel good every day. Yeah, absolutely. So I wake up and I drink. Uh, I try not to drink a lot of water before bed just so I don't have to get up and pee all the time. But, uh, you know, I have a glass of water as soon as I wake up and then I let the dogs out and I go walking barefoot in the sun, usually just coming up towards the cow pasture. And I get like bright sun, physical activity. Uh, and I think that's like for us, like nature is kind of, um, you know, we think doctors should be prescribing nature. So that's why we move back to a farm. And, uh, you know, uh, being in academia, you're really just, you can't escape being in front of your computer like eight to 12 hours a day, you know, especially teaching. I actually like when I'm teaching because I'm like walking around teaching, you know, I'm on my feet. Uh, I do have a stand-up desk, so, so that that definitely helps. But um, But I think it's super important to have, you know, nutrition is key. Exercise is key. I mean, these are things that we know, but to have creative downtime where, um, and actually I'm a, I'm a journaler. Like I have my journal here 
So I, I, I'm, I do like to plan. I don't always like plan every aspect of my life. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There you go. But, uh, but I do think it takes a lot of the stress out of if I know what I'm doing the next day, I sleep a lot better at night. I will look at what I'm doing. Like I end my work day, you know, at a certain time every day and I look, okay, this is what I got to do tomorrow. I don't have to like stress about it at night, but we do two walks every day. And we get out nature as much as possible, and um, and we build in creative downtime into our schedule. And I think that's like super key for people who are like hard hard charging people. You know, whether they're entrepreneurs. I mean, we're in academia, and you're just like, there's no rest. I mean, the emails are just coming in when you teach a couple hundred students, and you're have, have full time research and teaching obligations. It becomes crazy, and if you don't budget that time in, you're just going to go crazy. So, and I know for a mom and all the other things you do, I mean, this is super critical too. No, I love to like two of those things that really resonate. One, I have, I would say I have all of my clients and myself, especially for people who are having trouble falling asleep, like their mind is racing, writing, writing or reviewing. If you already have it written your to-do list, for the next day, but usually writing it down and getting it out of your head because half the time we're like just sitting there spinning with like, okay, I, I can't forget to do that tomorrow. I can't forget to do this or just writing your schedule down for the next day. And it's on yeah. paper. It's right. You can push it to the side and then obviously getting out in nature. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Tom, if you're familiar with um, Dr. Suzanne Hackenmiller, but she is really big in forest bathing. And she prescribes, oh, yes. um, she's That's an OBGYN, but she, yeah. yeah, she prescribes yeah. nature therapy. And then she, she also leads yep. like, um, forest bathing walks and, but, um, the stories she has, um, she's hoping more will turn into studies, but just like the anecdotal stories she has working with children and adults and the profound effects of, whether it's even just having some of her appointments outside, how much more she gets accomplished. And uh, she has a, a, a really fabulous story um, with it, you. I mean, we have it on our show for anyone who wants to like listen more to it. Um, but with a child with autism who just was not like yes. they were taking them to so many doctor's appointments, wasn't responding, wasn't responding. And she was like, you know what? Let's go for a walk outside as we you know talk and it was like the doors just opened up for the child like was yeah. willing to share held her hand even like all these things and you know the parent was so astonished but there are so many profound effects just getting outside and getting fresh air even yeah. if it's cold out um sometimes that just like that cold yeah. air gust feels so good um so i love that we're in florida but yeah i yeah. i love cold air too but yeah i think Nature, and if you couple that with animals too, we have cows that are more oh, yeah. like pets. They're like halter trained and they love to be like petted and everything or dogs. And a dog is like an amazing hack because it will have a tight schedule and you have to, you know, we have high energy dogs that we need to walk like every day. So I always get in, uh, I always get in 10,000 steps every day just for the dogs, you know, just the dogs alone. <laughs> Uh, but the dogs are, they build your microbiome. They're always rolling around in the cow poop and coming in the house and they sleep, you know, <laughs> I probably have uh, a pretty strong immune system. People uh, who have, you know, pets have like stronger immune system and less allergies and things like that. So 
I think that's great. Uh, the other two things that I mentioned, uh, I'd like to mention is just we have, um, we had this like old concrete hot tub thing at our house and I got it, you know, functioning with a heat pump. So I've been doing this heat therapy and I, I've been able to hack the uh, thermometer to get it pretty hot. So I do heat therapy at night in the hot tub where I get my temperature to 102 and I keep it there for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then I jump into a cow trough that I have some ice in our big barn freezer that I dump into it at night and I'll do like the hot tub and then jump into the cow trough with cold water ice and go back and forth. And uh, that has lowered my blood pressure like 10%, at least five oh or 10%. And I'm I'm probably, blood I, I like, would think you'd sleep so well after that. Too. Yes. I was going to mention that. Yeah. Sleeping, sleeping really well. And I do a lot of thinking. Actually, it's, it's time. My wife doesn't do the cold, but she does the hot tub with me. And it's also a good time to just. That would, that would be me. I'd be like, I'll do the hot tub. (laughs) It's good couple time. I know everybody, you know, doesn't have a hot tub or whatever, but like you could get the same benefits, I think, from a hot shower or a hot bath. Mm Uh, or sauna, right? I mean, there's a lot of tons of data on sauna. Uh, Rhonda Patrick has done a very deep dive into all the health benefits, Peter Tia too, on, on sauna. So that that's another thing that I build into my schedule pretty much every day. And it's something that we do before bed. And uh, my sleep is always great. So. Yeah, no, I love that. We've recently, which I'm pregnant and I know, like I, I only stay in the sauna for five minutes right now. Yeah. But we recently joined a gym that has a sauna and... I mean, half the time we go, and luckily they have a nice little kids club for our son that he enjoys. Um, so there's no guilt. But I just go like half the time down when we're like going to the gym. I'm just going in the sauna. I do a meditation in there. It's like, oh, it's like a sanctuary. But the the effects it has, and like I said, I'm only going for five minutes right now, just being pregnant and trying to be cautious and not like overheat. Yeah. Oh, it's like the best thing ever. You know, it's so nice. I would love to eventually get one at our house. Um, but that's, uh, you know, down the road. <laughs> well, I think we just had a blog on this. And scientifically, the benefits really come from heat therapy, just bringing your body temperature up. In general. So, uh, and I'm also of the opinion uh, when it comes to the brain, if you go into a hot tub and keep your head out of the heat, and I know the blood circulation is going to your head too, but I think there's still like a little bit of a differential there. If you're in a, a, a sauna, you're kind of overheating your head and that could do some damage potentially. So yeah. uh, hot tub, on the other hand, is just, you know, it can bring your body temperature up without superheating your head. So, uh, you know, well, that's I, interesting. I, I never I thought of it that way. Yeah, especially if, you know, this time of year when it's kind of cool out, uh, but I'll keep a thermometer. I basically developed a protocol by keeping a thermometer, you know, under my tongue and getting up to 102 and figuring out what temperature I need to do that. And just based on the research, like what what level of body temperature do you need to get up to? And if you keep your hot tub at 104 or 105 and you're in there, uh, water really heats you up fast when you're in relative to like a dry sauna. So you can achieve that really quick and just hold it for 15 minutes and you're activating all the beneficial effects. And if you do the cold and then the hot again, it's like exercising your vasculature, like yeah. relaxation, contracting. And the benefits and the science behind it are really amazing. Well, I mean, that's it's like what, the same exercise. Dumb, for anyone who like doesn't have a hot tub or like could do a cold plunge, they can get a similar benefit to even being in the shower, right? Going from hot to cold. Oh, yeah. Like at the end yeah. of their shower? Absolutely. Yeah. Just putting your shower on cold 
you know, everybody has, you know, people have running water. So all you need to do is just turn it on cold and you'll, uh, I mean, we live in Florida. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's the cold is a little bit warmer, but, uh, but we could probably still achieve it. We have a ground well. So, I mean, I think the temperature is something like, you know, in the sixties, but you could achieve the same effects. Yeah. Just, just in the shower. I love it. Um, okay. So we do yep. love to end every episode with a quick three question, rapid fire Q and a. So first thing that comes to mind, we may have already answered this one, but what is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool? practice well i think i would the two things i really look forward to in the day like especially when the day gets hectic in the middle of the day are the two things i mentioned we do we always have uh i didn't have breakfast today but we usually have breakfast in the morning and then uh dinner together and then a walk right after and wearing a continuous glucose monitor really is very insightful into that it's knocking down that spike that would typically you know, happen after dinner. So our walk is a time to, you know, relationships are key too. So uh, we're getting exercise, we're exercising the dogs and we're following up. We do just like a recap of the day. So that's like key and that's like a non-negotiable. And pretty much 90% of the time we do the uh, hot tub too. So I love that. It's satisfying your physical health and your mental health. Um, Okay, Dom, coffee or tea or neither? Coffee. Coffee. Sure. And how do you take how do you take yeah. your coffee? Uh I use a French press most of the time for my coffee. And uh I like to experiment with different types of coffees too. Uh so yeah. So usually oh, and I do uh in no no milk. Uh I do a pinch of uh stevia sometimes or monk fruit. And sometimes mm-hmm. I put in a product called keto brains, which is like yep. Alpha GPC and it's, you know, C A M C T and lion's mane mushrooms. Love it. Uh, which are, and it's a good nootropic. And especially when I'm like writing grants or need to do a lot of teaching, uh, I put that into my coffee. Cool. Um, okay. My personal favorite and our final question What is your favorite home cooked meal? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'd have to, because I love to eat everything. So uh, <laughs> I would say like wild game. I was raised on like 50% of what I was eating was like venison and like pheasant and quail and squirrels and, <laughs> and rabbit and, and those kinds of things. But uh, nowadays, just like the steak on the grill, uh, a meat Usually, and steak is my favorite, and turkey or fish or something. So I would just say a good steak cooked on the grill, which we do about once a week. We'll do like a ribeye, you know, and I don't, I used to eat a lot more red meat, but uh, I've tried to like be a little bit more, have more variety from protein sources. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Well, this has been, I mean, all this information has been so invaluable and so great for, I know, not only myself, but our listeners. But tell Dom, where can people connect with you, find you, and learn more about your research and what you're doing? Thank you. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, We do have a blog called ketonutrition.org. So go there. Uh, We have a lot of articles on there, uh, resources. Sign up for the newsletter. Uh, Metabolic Health Summit is a conference that we host. Uh, Taking... 2023 off, but it'll be January 2024. 
we're about to launch that date soon. By the time this comes out, we'll have launched that, uh, you know, the, the date for that. And the Metabolic Link podcast, which is just starting up now and we're, you know, launching that and in the process of launching that. So yeah, uh, ketonutrition.org, Metabolic Health Summit, and the Metabolic Link podcast, uh, all areas that you'll find information about what I was talking about on this podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll connect again soon. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate being on. This week's actionable step is to take a look at the fats you're choosing to consume each day. Are you mainly incorporating healthy fats into your diet? Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.